0: The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit Champschurch.com. I want to give you a few things that we're going to look forward to as we get into the scripture. Oftentimes I encourage note-taking. I think writing things down is good. It makes a connection between your ear and your brain, and it goes through your hand. And you can jot these things down just to make that connection, but also to revisit it. Because we're here and we hear something, and, and I know I've listened to my share of messages, whether I've been there live in person or listening to, to CDs or, or different recordings. And there comes that point where capacity is met, and maybe you start to check out a little bit. Mine is at about five to seven minutes. Mine's pretty short, actually. But for most of us, it's around like 20-something minutes. And a lot of that is because we've been trained by television, really, the 30-minute program, you know, with commercial breaks in between so you can regroup and then check back in. But I encourage writing things down because God's speaking something to you right here and right now to you. Though there's one message for a group, there's very specific elements for each one of us personally, and when we write those things down and we revisit them in our own time, wonderful things happen. God will speak to us and show us things very personally and individually. So if you're able to take some notes, I want to encourage you to write a few things down. These are some things we're going to find in the message, right? Here's one thing. We're going to find this one. We'll find this one rather quickly. What we need to always be doing. What we need to always be doing. And I mean, like words like always are interesting to me because always is a little bit absolute, right? It doesn't leave room for a break or it doesn't leave room for a day off of any kind. I mean, always is always. So we need to find out something in the Scripture that we're always supposed to be doing. Now, another thing that we're going to find is how to be like Jesus. How to be like Jesus. Now, that one's kind of interesting to me because I think we know we need to be like Jesus, right? We hear that and we'll we'll speak of it and sing about it and learn it in our Sunday school and children, you know. But it's not enough for me to know I need to be like him. You're going to have to tell me how to be like him. Because if I know I need to be like him and I never learn how to be like him, that's going to be a really deep frustration. I will be trying all sorts of things in attempts to be like Jesus, but without any instruction, there's a lot of possibility that I will waste my time, make poor choices, or try things the wrong way. And then there's a third thing that we're going to find. Why being in the presence of God is necessary. Why being in God's presence is absolutely necessary. We need it. I want to get into the word here. We're going to find out that first thing, you know, what we need to always be doing. And the the purpose of today's message, not necessarily the title, but the point of the message today is about joy. The first thing that we mention there is what we always need to be doing. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles if you have them with you. If you're taking notes, write the verse down. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7. Philippians chapter 4 what you always need to be doing, what I always need to be doing, what we always need to be doing. Philippians chapter 4. Now beginning in verse 4, it reads like this. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. There it is right there always, what we always need to be doing, you and me, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now here comes the rest of the text. And let your gentle spirit be made known to all men, that the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and, now this verse 7 is kind of the result of putting all of these things to practice, Okay. So the result of putting these things to practice, it reads like this, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty awesome thing, right? I mean, I know if if someone's saying, hey, here's the list to sign up to have your heart and your mind guarded by Jesus Christ, I'm signing up for that. Because there's a lot of things in this world that are disturbing to my life. They're disturbing to my heart and my mind. When I see them, when I hear about them, when I feel them closing in around me, it's frustrating, it produces anxiety, it has the potential to produce fear, the things that cripple and paralyze. But our hearts and our minds have been given this wonderful and precious opportunity to be protected by Jesus Christ himself. And this is kind of the formula for seeing that come to pass. It involves thanksgiving. It involves supplication and prayer. But it all starts with rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. And we used to sing songs about that. I grew up in a church that had come out of a wonderful movement of God. And a lot of the songs, it sounded like you'd gone to like a polka praise fest, right? You know those songs, don't you? The doom, 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 and all the ladies dance like this. And I mean, high heels are flying. If we didn't hear, there'd be one hanging from an acoustic ceiling tile, just poke right in there, poof, not come down. But I remember a song: "Rejoice in the Lord always." And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. rejoice and again I say, rejoice. It's this song. is really simple, right? I mean, how many words? That's just like three or four words tops. You know what's amazing though? When I'm facing trouble or trial or just sheer disappointment or my own flesh, just being in a bad mood, those are the songs that I turn to. They're valuable and important because it's Scripture. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God is intentional. It's not just good advice to have a good life. It's actually the the power of God for salvation to all of those who believe. That's me and you. So when we apply the Word of God, we get wonderful effects. So rejoicing is an amazing thing. Rejoicing has this wonderful opportunity to bring protection to our hearts and minds. It opens up the door for that to take place if we'll surrender to God's instruction that begins with rejoicing. And when I come to that, I have to ask myself, do I really know what that means to rejoice? Because it's one thing for me to memorize the scripture or remember the song, but do I understand what that means? I remember a young man, his mother and father were a part of the church years back. They actually helped establish the church back in the year 2000. You know what you want to do right now, right? My wife's laughing. In the year 2000. You know it. You know you know it. And the family was a wonderful family. And they, they put their children in an educational system that was biblically centered. And I saw something one day that I thought was really funny because the kid knew it. He knew it, but he didn't understand it. He knew it, but he didn't understand it. Kind of like we can know rejoice in the Lord always, but we cannot understand it. We could quote it to each other, preach it, sing it, but unless we understand it, we're really not going to get the effect of it. So this kid is running through the house, and he's swinging around his lightsaber, his little sword, his toy sword, and he's whacking stuff left and right and just spinning around like a wild man. And his mom says, stop, you can't do that. does a little spin and looks at her. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) See, he knew it, but he didn't really understand it. So for us, we can know rejoice. Hey, this all starts with rejoicing. Having your, your mind protected by Jesus and your heart protected by Jesus. It starts with rejoicing. We can know that, but we need to really understand it so we can actually do it. And do it the way he's designed. So I I always turn to the dictionary, right? Because the word of God is great, but how are you going to understand the word if you don't understand the words that make up the word? So I'll open up the dictionary and I'll look up rejoice. Here's what it says about rejoice. To feel or show joy. I kind of think that's a, a decent definition. I mean, I think it's good. I think it would get you an A on your test in school. But I like to sit and then kind of think about that. I mean, what does that mean to feel or to show joy? Well, first of all, it means that there's joy there to be felt or to show, right? It's going to be impossible to rejoice if there's no joy. But rejoicing is simply the the release or the expression, the action that's fueled by or founded upon joy. If joy is the motive of the action, then you are in the process of rejoicing. But it's going to be very difficult for any believer to rejoice if they don't have any joy to fuel or drive or be the foundation for their actions or their attitudes or their words. And that's where the gospel comes in. Because really, I think the gospel is all about joy. I think that's the point of the gospel, by the way. And I love when you're looking for the point of things. You know, you can go to the origin. And, and it's, it's really, pastorally speaking, it's embarrassing to me that we turn to the, the nativity and the birth of our king once a year. I mean, you realize some of the most anointed songs, we only sing them once a year. Right? I mean, look at the words to some of the Christmas songs that we sing. It's all I can do to not pound out an email to Pastor Jared and be like, Dear Pastor Jared, this week, let's do joy to the world. But you know what would happen? I mean, everyone would look at you like you're a weirdo. It's like, What, what month is it? You can't sing that. But you start thinking about the words, and they're about Jesus overcoming Satan and, and wonderful and miraculous and powerful things that totally make up the gospel. Well, catch this verse. When I mention that joy is really the point of the gospel, catch this. You can write it down for your notes. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke chap- chapter 2, verse 10. Now, here's what's happening here in Luke chapter 2. I know it's not December, but bear with me. There's shepherds in a field, and they're watching over sheep. And they're out in the hills outside of, of Bethlehem, and they, they have this amazing thing happened. An angel appears to them. And at first it startles them, it would startle you too. And once the angel reveals to them there's nothing to be afraid of, he then reveals the message that he's assigned to bring to them. And it's the message that reveals the gospel and its point, its purpose. The message that comes from the angel, sounds like this, Luke chapter 2 verse 10, do not be afraid for behold I bring good news, now remember good news is what gospel means, so this angel could be saying I bring the gospel, I'm bringing you good news, and then it says what the good news is, I'm bringing you good news of a great joy, that is for all peoples, so we love the gospel, we carry our Bibles, we preach the gospel. The gospel just means good news, but what's all that good news about? Well, that good news is about a great joy. We'll find out more and more as we get into the word today that joy is a priority in the gospel. So we know we're looking to rejoice. I need to rejoice. I want guard, God to guard my heart. I want him to guard my mind. I want Jesus Christ to stand as the sentinel over my thoughts and my thinking, my emotions. I want to be able to rejoice so that I can have that peace and that stability. But I know that I can't rejoice unless I have joy. I can't have my actions and my mentalities and my words be founded by and fueled by joy if there's no joy inside of me. And that's why the gospel has come. I bring you good news of a great joy. It's really hard to be a Christian without joy. I want to give you a passage of scripture concerning the kingdom of God as Jesus would preach. You can take it down for your notes. Matthew chapter 13 verse 44 is where I want to start. Actually the whole thing is one verse. Wouldn't you love to show up at church and your pastor preach one verse? You'd be first in line at whatever restaurant you choose, right? You'd be waiting for them to open the door. He preached this message and it's it's one verse. Matthew 13:44. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And a man finds it and hides it again. That's interesting, right? He doesn't steal it. He can't steal it. That would be illegal. Excuse me. He just puts it back. He finds it and he puts it back. And then something happens. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Do you realize none of that works without joy? None of that works without joy. This man that finds this treasure would be denied this treasure if he could not find the joy in that that treasure existed, that it had worth and that it had value. Jesus is telling us something. He's telling us that there's something out there that some don't see, but we can find it. You can see it. God can open your eyes to it. And if you see it, and you realize the value and the worth of that thing, you will have no problem whatsoever getting rid of all of your junk in a heartbeat in order to obtain what you now know has true value, eternal value, long-lasting value. And all of that is because of joy. What a powerful thing. Joy. So by definition, joy. We go back to the dictionary. Remember, we're wanting to be able to rejoice. We know that we need to have joy in the first place. If you look up joy in the dictionary, it'll it'll read like this. The definition will read, uh, The emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. Something exceptionally good or satisfying. So for me and for you, there comes the point where we examine what Jesus has done on our behalf. And is there an emotion of excitement? Is there an awareness that what he's done is exceptionally good and satisfying? Now, satisfying is an amazing word to ponder. Because it's a little relative, right? I mean, what would satisfy you might not satisfy me. What would satisfy me might not satisfy you. It's an individual thing, right? We all have different needs. We all have different backgrounds. Some of us need to be forgiven of a whole, whole, whole lot. Some of us have been pretty good, but you know you still need the mercy and grace of God. It's a relative thing. But can we turn our eyes toward Jesus and see that great joy that the good news is all about? And when we can do that, we can have that foundation of joy that releases us to rejoice That first step in having God protect our mind and our hearts. Joy is powerful. Based on what Jesus said there in Matthew, joy is the hinge point between obtaining the promises of the kingdom or having them be hidden away in a field. Joy. Now when we come to this awareness, it it starts to make sense why our joy is under such assault, why it's under such attack, right? I mean, and joy is under attack, make no mistake about it. I mean, I can't even watch a football game anymore without seeing a bunch of pharmaceutical ads to fight depression. And you hear the side effects and you think, well, now I'm depressed. Uh, And then they, they play that sappy music. You know the ads I'm talking about, Right? They show the woman like ignoring her children and stuff, and you're just kind of like, God, what was that phone number? Because they make it depressing, it's horrible. But what they're offering is something that can just kind of help someone cope or mask a symptom. That good news of a great joy is the cure, baby. It really is. Our joy is under attack because our joy is that place that's either going to move us to rejoicing for the rest of our life or keep us wandering around kicking rocks in a field hoping we trip over someone's treasure. Our joy is under attack. And it's important that we keep our joy, by the way. I want to give you a passage of Scripture. You have to promise me something, though, okay? I won't hold you to it, so maybe promise is a little strong. I don't want to put you in any kind of bondage. But I'd like for you to consider the following. Read a chapter out of the Bible. Read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 28 reveals all of these wonderful blessings, these promises of God that are for me and for you right here, right now, today. I mean, they're incredible. They're everything from from a prosperous life and, and a wonderful marriage and great children to finding what's on sale at the local supermarket. I mean, I'm serious, that's, it's in there and it's really cool. It's just the epitome of the blessed life, everything that God's bringing into our lives. And then there's a turning point in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that has very much to do with joy. Now, I want us to, to catch the point. The point isn't to talk about how bad or mean or vindictive or, or aggressive God can be, because that's not what he's saying here. What he's revealing is how important it is for us to be joyful people. When we lose our joy, we lose it all. If finding that treasure and being willing to lay down all of our lives in order to obtain it, which is what it's going to cost you, by the way, it's going to cost you everything. If finding that treasure and and being willing to lay down everything to obtain it all hinges upon joy, then we need joy. To be able to pay that price, to lay down the things that are corrupt. Even though they're killing us, we may not know it. We think it's good, it feels good, we like it, and so we want to keep it. But there's no room for keeping those things as we advance into the kingdom of God. And it's the joy for what God promises that empowers us and equips us to lay down the things that are keeping us back from His call and His purpose. Holding on to that joy is important, and God reveals its priority here in Deuteronomy. Chapter 28, I want to read verses 47 and 48 to you. Now, remember, I asked you to be very mature about this. Read Deuteronomy chapter 28. God is making every opportunity for blessing to enter into our lives. But read how important joy is here in verse 47. It's God speaking, and He's saying this. He's saying... Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy. Can you say joy? Joy. I want to make sure you hear that word. Because you didn't serve Him with joy. And a glad heart for all of the abundance of things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. In hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in lack of all things. And he, that he has a capital H. It's referring to God. And he will put an iron yoke around your neck until he has destroyed you. You know, I've never seen a bumper sticker with that verse on it. You know, I mean, you just don't. They wouldn't sell very well, would they? Now, don't read this and think, man, God's a monster, because that's not what's being emphasized here. What God's communicating here is how important, how vital joy is. What he's saying here is because you didn't serve me with joy and gladness, because it wasn't out of your own gratitude and excitement, but because it became mechanical, and I became an obligation to you, you're not going to find the victory that you would find if you were to be rejoicing and operating in the fullness of joy at the good news that I've revealed to you. Because your Christianity, because your walk with me has become nothing more than a a religious obligation. Prepare to serve your enemies. Prepare for there to be deficit and lack, hunger and thirst. And know that it won't get any better until it just consumes you and destroys you. That tells me we need to find our joy in Jesus. You know what's amazing to me? You see it in the Psalms. You see the psalmist in a place of of darkness, a place of frustration, maybe even, dare I say, depression. I don't want to speak for him. I wasn't with him when he wrote it. But he's obviously at a low point of some kind. And when he cries out to God, he's crying out for God's mercy and His grace. But he says it like this. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Bring me back to that place where I'm excited about what you're doing in my life. Bring me to that place where I realize you have empowered me to do great things, to overcome the things that want to put me in bondage and keep me in darkness and enslave my family. Bring me back to that place Bring me back to that place where I'm the biggest threat to hell since the resurrection. Bring me to that place. And let that joy inside of me be the fuel that burns the fire that's willing to cast down everything that keeps me from your perfect will. Joy. Joy, it's a priority. Jesus prayed for you and he prayed for me. I think he prays for us a lot, actually. But I love that God let John chapter 17 be recorded. I mean, if you want to write something down in your notes, you can just write John chapter 17, you can circle it about a thousand times and put stars and happy faces by it. I'm telling you, John chapter 17 will make your day. Because it's Jesus and he's praying for you. And by the way, the, you know, us being right here as believers is all because of John chapter 17. I mean, Jesus is praying and he's asking God to to consecrate and and set apart the disciples. And he says, and not just these, but everyone who hears and receives from them. That's me and you. Because they witnessed to someone who witnessed to someone who witnessed to someone who witnessed to someone and we don't have enough time to actually go through it, but eventually somebody witnessed to you. And that was his prayer. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for you, and you know he's aware of everything you need, not because of any divine wisdom or understanding, but because of his human experience. Because he became a man, and he walked the earth without any privilege other than the same things that you and I have available to us. Holiness, we have that available to us through the blood of Jesus, and power, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And as he's praying this prayer, he's praying for you, he's praying for me, and here's what he's mentioning as he's lifting you up in prayer. In verse 13, John 17:13. it reads like this. Jesus is talking to God the Father, and he says, And now I'm coming to you, God. I come to you, Father, and I've spoken your word in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've spoken your word to them. I've revealed your word to them so that they can have my joy in themselves. It's the point of every word that Jesus has ever spoken. Every sermon he's ever preached, every word of encouragement, every word of correction. I've spoken your truth to them so that they might have my joy. That's Jesus' joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, if your Bible is like mine, he says, I've spoken these things to them. I'm curious what these things are. If these things have the potency, the power, the the ability to bring the joy of Jesus Christ into my life, I want to know what these things are, right? If you want to know what these things are, all you have to do is go back a couple chapters to John 15. John 15, Jesus is telling everyone these things. And he's speaking about his joy before he prays this prayer. I think we got to look at what these things are and how these things make us like Jesus so that we can have the same joy that Jesus has. And remember, when we talk about joy, we're not talking about warm and fuzzies. We're not talking about giggles. We're talking about that drive and that power to release our words and our actions founded upon the joy that leads us to rejoicing. In John chapter 15, Jesus reveals the words that he's speaking that would be the foundation for him sharing such a wonderful promise that we might have his joy. He talks about two things. You can read it yourself in your own time. and In fact, I greatly encourage that. There's two things that he speaks about in John chapter 15 that stood out to me. You may see more. If you do, I'd love to hear about them. But he opens up talking about Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. You know, some of the most dark and depressing moments in my life were moments where I felt fruitless. Or I felt unproductive. I felt like I had no purpose. So it makes sense to me that Jesus, as he's talking about joy, would talk about us being productive, having purpose, being fruitful. You know, a man wrote a book about having purpose, and it sold millions and millions of copies to Christians. You want to know what that tells me? There's a lot of Christians that don't know their purpose. And by the way, that's not a criticism to the book. It's just more a call for us to wake up and look at our own needs, where things are falling short, where things need to be sured up. If we don't have purpose, it's really hard for us to be joyful. So in John chapter 15, Jesus is giving us instruction on how to be fruitful so that we can be joyful. And he, he says it like this in verse 4. He says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch is connected to the vine, and it will bear fruit. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. He's revealing to us the need to be connected to him in order to be productive. You're not going to have the joy of Jesus Christ if you're not connected to Jesus Christ. And he talks about something else there. And by the way, both of these things are proof or evidence that we're like Jesus. I mean, that's really what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? To become like Jesus. Even Christians, you could say, means just little Christs, like copies of Jesus. But as we read this, we are become increasingly aware of the priority. The point is joy. We've got to be fruitful if we want to look like Jesus because he's fruitful. And fruitfulness does something. It reveals that we belong to him, that we're connected to him. I want to give you a passage of scripture. John chapter 15 verse 8. Jesus is speaking about being fruitful. And he says God's glorified by this. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. It proves that we're like Jesus. If we can be productive in the things of God. And Jesus is giving us instruction in how to. Saying hey be plugged into me. If you're not plugged into me. If it's not flowing through me to you. It's not going to work. And then the other thing that he's speaking about when he's talking about us having his joy is fellowship. Fellowship. If you're taking notes, I would write that down fruitfulness and fellowship. If you're ever feeling in a funk, you're feeling blue, you're feeling down, you're feeling like depression or anxiety or fear are creeping at your door and joy is failing, joy is fleeting, joy is fading away and those other things are prevailing, it's good for us to examine, do I have fruitfulness in my life and do I have fellowship in my life? Because as Jesus is speaking about his joy, he reveals to us the need to be fruitful and the process and how to become fruitful, being plugged into him. And then after he speaks to us about his joy, he reveals these words. In John chapter 15 verse 12, he says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I've loved you. As he's talking about us walking in his joy, he's revealing to us these two wonderful things that we need in our lives. Productivity and fruitfulness. And fellowship that's founded upon unconditional love. I love that verse, by the way. You know, I mean, this is my commandment, that you love one another. I love that part, and I get terrified at the part where he says, just as I've loved you. I like people that are easy to love, right? Yeah, you know you do too. But he put that last part in there on purpose, because it's necessary. And love is proof that we're like Jesus. You can take this down for your notes. John chapter 13 verse 35. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Some of your Bibles may have if, a conditional word. They'll all know it if you have love for one another. So those two proofs, fruitfulness and love are revealing that we're like Jesus. And when we become like Jesus, we begin to function in the joy of Jesus Christ because we're like Him. I told you before we were going to find out something in the Scripture. How to be like Jesus. How to be like Jesus. Well, we know that being fruitful and having fellowship are the things that we need in order to be like Jesus. That's what we need. But I want to know how to get it, right? How to get it. If I just know what I need, but I don't know how to get it, it's going to leave me frustrated. I want to give you a passage of Scripture, and it's going to be rather lengthy. I'd like for you to write it down in your notes, and I'd like for you to visit it in your own time. Philippians chapter 2. And you can read the whole chapter, but I'd like to read a section to you. I want to start in verse 1, and I want to read the first 15 verses here. I know it sounds like a lot, but if you're able to read along with me, I promise you, You won't regret it. And here's what's written. Remember, this is how to be like Jesus so that we can be fruitful and have the fellowship, so that we can have His joy, be able to rejoice and have Jesus set as the guard of our heart and our mind. Chapter 2 begins like this. If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit. If any affection and compassion. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love. United in Spirit and intent on one purpose. Now, verse 3. Do nothing. Will you say nothing? Yeah, see nothing. That's absolute, right? Nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now verse 5, how to be like Jesus. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That is the name of Jesus. And at that name every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I want you to pay attention to these last verses. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen, that's a lot of reading. But I want to encourage you to read it again. And just let it soak in. Now we talked about a couple of things there and there's a third thing that we're going to touch on before we close. Fruitfulness proves that we're like Jesus. Fellowship proves that we're like Jesus. But then, in all of that reading in Philippians, seeing the attitude of Jesus Christ, it comes to the end and it gives us an instruction and says, Do this and so prove yourself to be innocent and blameless children of God. Prove that you're like Jesus. I love fruitfulness, I like being productive. I said it earlier, I like to win. I like fellowship. I'm a a bit of a a party animal. I live a very private life at times, but then other times, very public, and I enjoy people, some people. uh. But it's this one here that really pierces my heart. And it's this one here that I know for me personally, just me individually, I'm not saying that it should have any greater worth or merit to to you as you hear it, but to me this is the one where I think, oh, oh. The proof of being like Jesus. The proof to know that I've emptied myself just like Jesus. The proof to know that I have the same attitude as Jesus. The proof is revealed in these words. And when I cross this with my life, I have to ask myself, does that describe me? If it doesn't describe me, then there's going to be a hindrance to the joy of Jesus Christ in my life. In those last two verses that we read, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, you'll see the proof. Let me read it to you once again. It starts off right up front. Here's the proof do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then you see the so that, right? Can you say so that? So that, yeah, do it all without grumbling and disputing. So that, meaning if you do it all without grumbling and disputing, this will be the result. The result will be you'll prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as light in the world. All of that, me being light, me standing out against the world who's totally corrupt, me looking different than them. And proving that I'm a child of God in order to function and operate in the same joy that Jesus has. All of this is conditional upon me doing things without griping. You know, that's a real weakness for me. If you don't believe me, you could ask my wife after service. But I'm serious. And you know what it is? It's childish, it's carnal, it's in every person, it's in our nature complaining and grumbling. You'll see complaining and grumbling and the nasty effects of it. It's prevention of entering into the promises of God throughout the scripture. If you're not familiar with the story, you could get acquainted with it through the book of Exodus and the books of Moses there where you see grumbling and complaining hinder people from entering into the promises of God. Well, that's still going on. Still going on. And there's a reason why it's impossible for us to be like Jesus while we're griping. There's a reason for that. You would think that God has covered so many sins with the blood of Jesus and pardoned some really nasty stuff. So you would think, well, why is this complaint or this griping such a big deal? I mean, why is it that such horrible immoralities and horrible murders and slanders and these terrible things are forgiven, and then here comes griping and complaining, and that's a real issue for you, God? What's the deal with that? It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But we have to understand that there's two ministries going on in heaven at any given time. Whether you want to say in heaven or on earth, there's just two ministries going on. One is the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's always making intercession. I mean, He's interceding for me and you. His blood is constantly testifying on our behalf, making intercession. And then there's this other ministry, and it feels wrong to even use the word ministry, but it is a work and it is an effort. And it's the work or the effort, or you could say the ministry of Satan. So Jesus is the ministry of intercession, and then here's Satan, the ministry of accusation. He wants to stand constantly accusing, accusing you. And I really have come to see that complaining is so foul to God because it's absolutely impossible to complain without there being a foundation of accusation. And so here we are as believers and we love the ministry of intercession. Thank you, Jesus, for your intercession on my behalf. And then we function and operate in the ministry of the devil with our complaints and our grumbling and our complaining. Without even realizing it, making the same accusation that he wants to make. And I got to tell you, this is really tough for me because my natural inclination is to complain. That's not how I would do it. I would have done it like, whoever did that was a fool. That was dumb. That was whatever you want to say. But for us, there's a need to guard our mouths. But more than just guard our mouths, surrender our hearts. Father, take complaining out of my life. Let me be willing to surrender my life to your hands to see that you guide me, you move me, you hold me in all of these things. Let me be a grateful person. And I actually think that when the psalmist wrote these words, he was dealing with this issue. When he wrote, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be in my mouth. I don't think he was showing off that he's really righteous. I don't think it was a pious thing. I think it was a request Father this is my desire I find myself complaining slandering and griping and I know that it has no part in you please let it be that your praise would continually be in my mouth and then something happens when we get rid of complaint and grumbling it opens the door for something great we can be a people who could be described as a grateful people Right And gratitude is really powerful. Remember, we want to be rejoicing. We want to rejoice, but we can't rejoice until we have joy. It's going to be really hard to have joy without gratitude. It really is. Have you noticed that none of the praise and worship, none of the songs that we sing are filled with complaint, right? That's good. I know some people that would write some terrible praise songs. Right. Oh Lord, you gave me a stinky boss He's a jerk And my kids are lost And I just want you to strike them down And elevate my life and Get me out of this hole you've made Can you lift your hands to that? No, those songs are all about gratitude and thanksgiving, and we're meant to be pulled out of our ungratefulness and into gratitude because when we enter into gratitude, we have a wonderful possibility open up to us. I'll give you a couple of verses, and then we're closing. Psalm 100, verse 4. Some of you have heard this, and it needs to be repetitive. We need to catch this. Gratitude is awesome. Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to His name. Bless His name. Being in the presence of God is an absolute priority. We're going to find that in a moment. But in order for us to get into the presence of God, we've got to be grateful. In fact, without thanksgiving, you won't even get past the gate. And I've seen people in the same room with the same song playing And some people are in a place of an encounter with God, and I've seen others that are just, it's kind of loud in here, isn't it? Now I'm not picking on any individual person, but I'm just saying you could be in the same environment and have totally different effects. That tells me something. That tells me it's not about the music. Sorry, Jared, you're really good, though. It's not about the, the band or the production. It's about the heart. 100%. And when we can be grateful, we can enter through those gates, and when we can enter through those gates, we can be in His presence. I told you before we're going to find out why that's so important, why it's a priority to be in the presence of God. You can write it down for your notes or turn there. Psalm chapter 16, Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16: 11. When we're grateful and we can enter through those gates and get into the presence of God, we have access to something powerful. Psalm 1611 reads this, In your presence is the fullness of joy. That joy that we need to keep those fires kindled and burning, to be willing to throw down all of the self-seeking and ambitious things that are destroying our life and keeping us from walking in the presence of God and the kingdom of God, All of those things that we need to go and sell and get rid of in order to buy that field that has that treasure. Joy. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.